If you have your Bibles this morning, if we'll open to Galatians chapter 3. We've been in the book of Galatians for several weeks now, and we're going to attempt to finish up chapter 3 today, and then we're going to take a pause. We don't normally do this, but this is a little longer series for us, so we're going to take a pause over the next couple of weeks and address some different things outside of the book of Galatians, and then we'll come back after fall break there, the middle of October, and, and finish up our time in this book. Um, we entitled this series, No Other Gospel, and we, we derived that from chapter 1, where Paul is talking to the church at Galatia and says, you guys are getting off track here. You're, you're running after a different gospel than the one that saves. And he, and he makes the point that really is no other gospel. There's a bunch of false gospels out there, and those are prevalent even in the culture in which we find ourselves. But at the end of the day, there's only one gospel that saves, and it is the good news that we are saved by the grace of God, his free gift through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's what we're here to proclaim, and if nothing else that you walk away with today, we want you to know that that is good news worth proclaiming. We want to sing it, we want to preach it, and above all, we want to live out this gospel. So Galatians chapter 3, if you're able to stand in honor of God's word this morning, would you do so as we share these scriptures together? The Apostle Paul writes these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies more than, implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated this morning. Father, as we dive into your word here in Galatians 3, Lord, it 
It surely contains many things which are difficult for us to understand, but so very necessary. So I pray, Father, help me to communicate your word clearly today. Lord, help us to drive right at the very heart of the gospel. That we would not be led astray by the false gospels of our age. That we would not trust in any sort of Jesus plus gospel, but that we would rest in Christ and what He alone has done. That He has done for us what we could never have done for ourselves. And it's by His grace through faith that we are saved. In Christ alone, our hope is found. So enable me, Father. Enable me to preach today. Give us ears to hear. And by your grace and for your glory, may we be transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name. entitled the message today, The Gospel Promise, mostly because the word promise is so prevalent in this part of the book of Galatians. You find it eight times in the verses that we just read. And in fact, if you enjoy marking your Bible, I would encourage you just to underline or circle that word promise that you see there eight different times because it's really the theme of what we're going to talk about this morning and right here at the heart of this book that gives us a clear picture of the gospel. I like what Dr. David Platt said about this chapter. I think it's so helpful. I'm going to kind of use uh, this picture that he gives us as we walk through these verses today. He said, I would describe this chapter as three mountain peaks that appear back to back to back. So imagine that in your mind this morning that we are getting ready to climb a mountain together. And some of you may feel like we've climbed a mountain by the time we get done this morning. But we're not going to climb just one mountain. We're actually going to climb three mountains this morning. And the first peak deals with Abraham. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis, the very first book of the Bible this morning, and make our way through some of the Old Testament because the, the second mountain peak there deals with Moses and, and the law. And then the third and final and by far the most glorious, it'll be worth the climb for us to get to Christ and to see the glories of what the Apostle Paul was given for us here at the end of Galatians chapter 3. So let's climb the first mountain together if you, if you would. Uh, we're going to talk about the promise of the Lord to Abraham. I've got to take you all the way back to the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis chapter 12, we meet a guy whose name at that time was Abram, A-B-R-A-M. Later, God changes his name to Abraham according to the promises that he had, was making to Abraham. We won't get into all that this morning. But what we learn from Abraham, and I want to say to you this morning, even if you drown out the rest of what I'm getting ready to say, if, if you were to go home with one thought this morning, I'm giving to you, it to you right off the bat. This is the one thing that I would want you to know and to be able to live out as a result of the Word of God this morning, and it's this. That God's promise, not our performance, has always been the basis of His relationship to us. 
That, that's really the heart of everything that I want to say this morning, and it comes straight out of Galatians chapter 3, and I know that so many of us need to be grounded in this good news, that the favor of God is never going to come your way as a result of your performance. It's our performance that causes us to be without the favor of God. It's our performance as sinners that causes us to be separated from Him and without a right relationship with Him. It's our performance that messed everything up. It's His promise that redeems all that we had broken. Once again, Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you've been saved. Grace means the gift of God, the free gift of God, not that which we earn, not about our performance it's the grace of God we're saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's like he's hammering this thing home. It's not your own doing. It's not what you can do that garners you salvation. It is the gift of God, the free gift of God, not a result of works. In case you didn't get it when he said it's not your own doing, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And I've told you this before. Here's what I understand about my sinful heart that I think is true of every sinful heart. The Bible says all of sin comes short of the glory of God. Here's what I understand about my sinful heart. If I had a 1% share in my own salvation, if God did 99% and I did 1%, or if God did 99.9% or 99.9 to infinity percent and, and I had just this little tiny portion in my own salvation, I would boast about that tiny portion. I would boast about my 1% over and above God's 99% because that's what the sinful heart does. It's looking for something to boast about. It's looking for something to well up in pride. And if I had even the smallest part in my salvation, if God did the bulk of it and I had even the smallest part, that's, about what, that's what I would boast about. But praise be to God, the Apostle Paul writes, I have nothing to boast about except for Christ and Him crucified. And that's what we want to boast in this morning. And so God made these promises to Abraham, not based upon his performance, but upon the pure grace of God. And so what does he promise Abraham? We see the, the covenant with Abraham, God's promises to Abraham. By the way, the word covenant means a God-sized promise. We see the covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17. You might just jot that down and go home and look at it for yourself. Genesis 12, 15, and 17. We see God enacting this covenant, this God-sized promise with this man named Abraham. Now, we might think that God looked down from heaven and saw Abraham, saw a really good dude, and thought, man, I want to make some great promises to this really good dude. No, Abraham was a wretched sinner. A couple times he even sells his own wife out to save his, his own skin. But he was a sinner saved by grace. And God gave him this gift of faith that he counted as righteousness. And it was a glorious, glorious thing. But what did God promise to Abraham? There's three main things that we see in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. First promise that God made to Abraham was property. Abraham was a nomad, and in that day, land was a sign of wealth. And God said, Abraham, I want you to get it from where you are in your nomadic existence where you travel around in tents with your flocks, and I want to take you to a land that I'm going to give to you. I want to give you this land. And throughout the Old Testament, we hear of the promised land. It's the same land that the Jews went into after their captivity in Egypt, and they, and they took that over in the days of Moses and in the days of Joshua. We see this promised land that God promised to Abraham, and it was purely, purely based upon God's promise. 
God never said, Abraham, if you'll do X, Y, and Z, I'll give you this land. No, he says, it's my promise to you out of my desire to bless you. Secondly, he promises him progeny. God meets up with Abraham first time at the age of 75, well beyond childbearing years, and says, I'm going to give you descendants. Chapter 15 says, hey, Abraham, look at the stars in the sky. Why don't you try to count those suckers? He doesn't use the word suckers. That's my poor interpretation. I want you to try to count the stars. And if you can count them, so shall your descendants be. They're going to be without number was the point. And the Bible says Abraham believed God. He took God at his word. He trusted God. And it was credited to him. It was counted toward him as righteousness promise of progeny descendants it was not until Abraham was a hundred years old that the child of the promise came his son named Isaac and finally and most importantly God's promise to Abraham as you look at Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 is he promises him his presence you see this constant theme in those chapters of God saying Abraham my desire is to bless you now, blessing is one of those church words that has been so radically wrecked in our day that I need to help you to understand what that word means. When we think of blessing, we tend to think of all the things that God has given us. God has blessed us with children. God has blessed us with a home. God has blessed us with a church. And, and all those things are a part of the blessing of God. But as you read through the Bible and look at the way the word blessing is used in the Scriptures, here's one thing that you will find consistently. That the greatest blessing is not that which comes from the hand of God. It's drawing near to the heart of God. The greatest blessing is not what God might give you. It is God Himself. And so before we come asking God for all these blessings, and God does desire to give to His children as, as every good father does, but before we come to that place, we first must recognize this, that the greatest blessing is God Himself and to know Him and to be known by Him. That's why God says to Abraham in chapter 15, Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. The reward is not just the property. The reward is not just the descendants. The great reward is that you will know me and be known by me. That you will walk the rest of your days with me. And believers, isn't that true? Isn't that the great blessing of the Christian life? Because the property fades. The children leave home. All the physical blessings of this life will one day be ash, but the presence of God will remain. He is the blessing. So when you pray, God bless me, understand that what you are praying is, God draw near to me. And the Bible promises us, if you will draw near to God, He will draw near to you. He desires intimacy with His children. And so Abraham walked with God. But what we also see there in verse 17 is that the promise of Abraham preceded the law, which made it primary. Now, let me help you understand what, what the Apostle Paul is trying to deal with here. In the church at Galatia, there were these guys known as the Judaizers who had come along, and they had a Jesus plus gospel. And theirs was a Jesus plus Judaism gospel. They were saying, you know, all this stuff about grace and faith is fine, but in order to really be right with God, you've got to keep the Old Testament law. You've got to practice circumcision. 
You've got to keep the dietary restrictions. You've got to become a good Jew in order to be a good Christian. And here Paul is saying that's garbage. It's rubbish. It's not a Jesus plus gospel. Christ alone is sufficient. And so he argues here in verse 17 that the law that they were hanging their hats on came secondary to the promise. That's why he's driving back to Genesis 12 and not landing in Exodus 20, though we'll get to Exodus 20 in just a moment. So why was the fact that the promise came first important? Let's think about a debate that's happening in our culture right now. It refers to our founding fathers here in this nation, guys like George Washington and John Adams and and Thomas Jefferson and, and others like them, Benjamin Franklin. And one of the main things that's being argued in our culture right now is what did those guys really believe? So you've got these secular theorists who are saying, well, uh, most of those early founding fathers, they really weren't Christians. If anything, they were deists, and some of them might have even been atheists, and they're trying to remove the foundational element of Christianity in America. They're trying to destroy the foundation that America was based upon Christian principles. You go to Galatians 5.1, you find it saying it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Let us no longer be held by a yoke of slavery. And that was a foundational Christian principle on which our founding fathers built this country. But why the debate? Because they understand rightly that if you can destroy the foundation, you can get control. They understand rightly that if you can take away the Christian foundation of our nation, you can redefine this nation into whatever you desire it to be, which is anything but Christ-honoring and God-like. The Bible says if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What recourse do we have if the foundations are destroyed? And what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's saying, let's go back to the foundations. Let's go all the way back to Abraham, the founding father of the Jewish people. Let's go all the way back to Abraham and let's remind ourselves that it was not the law that rescued Abraham. It was not about Abraham being a good boy and Sarah being a nice girl. No, it was about the promise of God. It was always about God's grace. It was always about God's promise. Not our performance. And yet for so many in our churches today, they come to faith in Christ. They receive the grace of God in their lives. And they drive right back into a performance-based mentality. Where I got to check off the boxes. Read my Bible today. I got to check off the boxes. Went to church this week. I got to check off the boxes. I tried to give a witness to somebody at work. We, get, we live our lives checking off the boxes when the list was burned at the cross. The list by which we would earn the favor of God was burned at the cross and grace was given. I want you to notice something in Genesis 12. Now the Lord God said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who honors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Who's the primary actor? It's God, isn't he? saying, I will. That's promised language. He's not saying, I might give you a land, I might give you descendants, I might give you my presence. No, he says, I will. 
And God is the only one that can make promises that will come true 100% of the time. Because not only does He have the power to make the promise, He has the power to keep it. We've started something new with our family every Friday morning before school. Uh, We take the kids out for breakfast. And I could say to my kids today, hey, kids, on Friday, I will take you to the farmhouse restaurant in Cloverport for breakfast. They love that place, by the way. I'd recommend it to you. It's a good restaurant. But I have no certain authority or ability to be able to keep that promise. Who knows what's going to come up between now and Friday that would keep us from being able to have breakfast at the farmhouse. I want to keep that promise. My desire as a father would be to be faithful to my word and do that which, which honors God and, and, and is helpful to my children, but I have no ability to keep a promise about tomorrow. But God does. He who is unchanging, who knows the present, the past, and the future, who is sovereign over all things. This is why the sovereignty of God is so important. Because without a sovereign God, all of these promises are suspect. But because He is sovereign and in control of all things, He can and will keep His promises. I will, He says. But notice as well in verse 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You are sitting here today, follower of Jesus Christ, because God is keeping his promise. I don't know that any of us here are of Jewish background. If you, if you are, God bless you, and we're thankful for you to be here today. But the vast majority of us here in Breckenridge County, we're Gentiles. Okay? We're non-Jews. We're not descendants directly of Abraham, though we are through our faith in Christ. We could get into that at a different time. But we understand this promise right here. And you know, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth, all the literally the, the ethnos, all the ethnic groups of the earth will have the blessing. What's the blessing? The blessing of God's presence through the same kind of faith that Abraham had given to him as a gift of Almighty God. He's the God who says, I will, and he keeps his promises. Let's climb another mountain this morning. The purpose of the law of Moses in verse 19, he says, well, then what's the purpose of the law? We look in the Old Testament, and we have law after law after law. In fact, the the rabbis of Jesus' day had identified over 600 unique laws in the Old Testament, and there were this group called the Pharisees, out of which the Judaizers came, this group called the Pharisees that were trying to live in accordance with all of those 600 laws, and they'd even added some extra ones along the way to help them. It was law upon law that they might try to earn the favor of God through their performance, and they were failing miserably as all of us do. So what is the purpose of the law then? God gave the promise in Genesis chapter 12, and then in Exodus chapter 20, as he says here, 430 years after. By the way, that 430 years refers to the time in which they were in slavery in Egypt. God had passed the promise from Abraham to his son Isaac and then to his son Jacob, and Jacob goes into into Egypt. He sojourns there for 430 years, and descendants are populated during that time, and they come out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, and then God gives the law. They've been living the promise, living the promise, living the promise, and now the law. Why the law? Well, it says in verse 19, the law was given to reveal sin. The law was given because 
of transgressions because of sin. The law was needed. It was given, though, not to re- not to remove sin, but to reveal sin. Let me sh- let me show you the difference. This morning, probably probably like me, most of you got up this morning and you weren't looking your best. Okay, this is how your pastor is in the morning. My hair is all over the place. Uh, my wife will tell you the breath is not exceptionally good. I do snore uh, horribly. And so there's just all kinds of stuff going on that needs some fixing. And I use something that's attached to our bathroom wall. It's called a mirror. How many of you have one? Okay. Most of you look like you use it this morning. Thank you for that. So, so you look in the mirror and you recognize, if you're like me, and I know some of you just wake up perfect from the get-go. But if you're like your pastor, you wake up in the morning and you go, whoa. You look in the mirror and you go, whoa, there's some fixing that needs to be done here. Those teeth need to be brushed. The hair needs to be combed. Probably needs to be washed first and then combed. There's some stuff that needs to go on in order for me to be presentable. But I don't think any of us in this room wash our face or brush our teeth or comb our hair with the mirror. If you do, please don't tell me. That's just really psycho. Just, that's, not, that's not the purpose of the mirror. The mirror's purpose is to show you what needs to be fixed, not to fix it. Are you beginning to see the purpose of the law? The purpose of God's law, of those ten commandments that we'll put up on the screen in just a moment, the purpose of God's law was to help us to see our need, not to help us to see the remedy. It was not the remedy. The law was meant to point us forward to something greater. All the while, the Ten Commandments were were, were like that mirror showing us that we were falling short of the glory of God. They were showing us our sin. It was a mirror that was showing us our transgressions. But the law was never meant to be the remedy any more than you're going to comb your hair with your bathroom mirror. It's not meant for that. And yet they were seeking to use it that way. They were seeking to fix themselves through obedience to the law, through being good boys and nice girls. Romans 3, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. The law shows us our sin and the wrath of God that we're due. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law shows us, reveals to us, puts on display our sin. It doesn't remove it. What should we say then, Romans 7, that the law is sin? No, the, the problem is not with the law. The problem is with our inability to keep it. God's law is good. He says, by no means is the law sin. If it had not been for the law, I would not even have known what sin was. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Not only does the law reveal our sin, it also produces more sin in us. You say, well, how does that work? Have you ever had that moment, parents or grandparents in the room, when you told your kids not to do something? Like you were really clear. There was no gray area. You were just like really clear that they were not to do fill in the blank. And then you turn around within 15 minutes and they're doing the exact thing that you told them not to do. Now in that moment, did you think, 
I wonder if my kid's gone deaf. No, you didn't wonder that. In that moment, did, did you sit back and go, I wonder if I was really clear about what I meant by that command? No, probably not. You probably just went directly to them and gave them the talk that we give our kids continually, which is, did I not just say, how many of you have had that moment, parents? Did I not just say, and yet there's something about the law, there's something about the command, there's something about the rule that makes a sinful heart want to break it. And that's what he's saying here. The law not only reveals our sin, but it shows us the depth of our depravity. And it's the very thing the law urges us to stay away from is the very thing the sinful heart desires. And so the very fact that the law says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, that you shall maintain sexual integrity in such a way that you will save yourself for your husband or your wife alone, one man and one woman united together in that way for a lifetime through the covenant of marriage. We know that that's good, that's God's plan, and yet that very law creates a place where lust and temptation rules in so many lives. But once again, the problem is not with the law because we could be quick to say, well, let's just throw out the law altogether if it's going to produce more sin. No, it's not a problem with the law. It's a problem in our response to the law. Even Jesus said, I came not to do away with the law. The law is good. He said, I came to fulfill it. I came to do for you what you could not do for yourself. I came to do for you what you could not do for Yourself. So in verse 21, so then are the, are the law and the promise contrary to one another? What we understand very clearly saying here is the law doesn't contradict the promise. Complements it. You say, well, how is that? It complements it in this way. That once again, the law of God is used as that mirror to show us our need. You and I would not recognize our need for a Savior until that mirror is held in our face and we see our sin. It's not until you recognize your depravity that you will know your need for a deliverer. It's not until you recognize how truly unrighteous you are that you will need, recognize your need for a rescuer. It's not until the law is put before us and we see how utterly sinful we are that we recognize how great a need we have for a Savior. And so I love what John Stott said. He said, we must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. That's what's happening in so many churches today. Here's the way the gospel is presented. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So just trust in Jesus and all will be well with you. It's garbage, folks. It's garbage on so many levels. Because what that gospel does not do is it does not address the reason why you need Jesus in the first place. Until I can see my sin, I have no recognition of my need for a Savior. And by the end of that little phrase of the gospel, the so-called gospel there, Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, just trust in him and all will be well with you, garbage. Jesus himself said, if you follow after me, there's going to be persecutions and temptations. In this life, you're going to have trouble. There's going to be hardships. Go read the book of Job for crying out loud. And if you think that God has made you a promise that your life will be fine, that all will go well with you, if you just trust in Jesus, it's a false gospel, folks. What the gospel says is that you are not radically sinful, rebellious against the holy God and deserving of His wrath. 
that we are lawbreakers deserving of eternal punishment, but God in his grace came to rescue us and took our punishment upon himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That's way better news than try really hard and God will be happy with you. Finally, again, I'm just going to hammer this point home because I believe the text does. The law shows us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Remember the mirror. It wasn't meant to fix you. It was meant to show you your need. So let's look at the Ten Commandments. You notice something about the Ten Commandments there? I know most of us KJV folks, thou shalt, such and such. So you get the picture. Notice what I've highlighted there. How was the promise in the law different? The promise to Abraham, God was saying, I will, I will. I'll give you the land. I'll give you the descendants. I will be with you and bless you, and you'll be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. God is constantly saying in the promise, I will, I will. But then the law comes and says, you shall, you shall. And here's the place that we sometimes find ourselves in. We see the promises of God, and we think that the you shalls are there so that we can do our end of the bargain. Well, God, you did the I will, and now if I do the you shall, then you work and I work, and it'll just work. It's not the gospel, folks. Again, remember the mirror. The law was given to show you your sin, to show you the fact that though it says you shall, you shall not. You shall not be able to keep this list of commandments, much less the hundreds of others that were added unto them. You are unable to do so. Because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Keep leaning into grace. One more mountain. I know you're already worn out, but give me one more mountain this morning because it's the best one. The power of our liberty in Jesus. Here's where it all comes down. And we're going to spend a lot of time in the rest of Galatians talking about what it means to be free in Christ. By the way, it doesn't mean free to do whatever you want to do in your sinful heart. That's not what it means. Being set free means you've been set free from that old sinful heart. You've been set free for something far greater. And now the law takes on a whole new perspective. You see, faith in Christ frees us from guilt-based obedience. There's two ways that you can seek to obey the law of God. We think back to those Ten Commandments. There's two ways that you can seek to obey the law of God. The first way, the way that you were born into, is what I call guilt-based obedience. It's where you better do this or else. And so many of us, we, we live so much of our lives in this cycle where we look at the good law of God and what we hear is, you better or else. And out of guilt, we do work as hard as we can to make ourselves worthy. We work as hard as we can to fulfill that law. I, so if I have a lust problem, I'm going I'm to work really hard and try really hard not to engage in that temptation of lust. Or, or if I have a problem with covetousness, desiring other people's things for myself, that I'll try really hard, God. I'm going to try really hard to honor you with my language. I'm going to try really hard to honor you with my dating relationships. I'm I'm going to work really, really hard, and hopefully everything will be fine. But what happens? You get on the spin cycle of guilt. And so you try really hard for a while, and then what you find is 
you fall into sin because you've been headed toward the pit the entire time. As long as you are living a life that's motivated by guilt toward God, you will never find victory. You will never find freedom. So you try really hard and you try to work yourself up toward being obedient to God. And then when you end up in the pit, then this guilt and shame overwhelms you. And then you go through a fake kind of repentance where, God, I feel really bad about this sin. And so I'm going to try really hard again not to do that again. And I see some heads nodding in the place because you've walked this cycle. And it has ruled far too long of your pastor's life. And it's so easy to fall back into. I'm just going to try really hard, God, to be good. But it was never about you being good. That's what the Father wants you to understand. It was never about you being good. It was about the fact that His grace was greater than your goodness. And so Tim Keller says, and I think this is so true, once we come to the law motivated by gratitude instead of guilt, we find that we're better in our obedience to the law than we ever were when we thought our obedience might save us. Some of you can relate with that. Having walked in grace for a season now, you're saying that's so true. I find more holiness in my life. I find more righteousness in my life. I find more obedience to God in my life now that I'm not racked with guilt, that I'm living in gratitude. And so the law now becomes something that I do not to earn the favor of God or seek to keep the favor of God. The law now becomes something that I do out of gratitude for the fact that the favor of Almighty God has been given to me as a result of the cross. That's completely different. I don't know if you understand how utterly different that is than a guilt-based obedience where I'm trying to work myself into the favor of God or to maintain something that God has done for me when when I'm living in that spin cycle and then I just pause and see Christ has done it all. We sing it, don't we? Jesus paid it all. I have yet to hear us sing. Jesus paid some of it. Now it's your turn. No, we sing Jesus paid it all. And why is that necessary? Because otherwise you'll spin on the guilt cycle for the rest of your life. And you will never rest in the grace of God. And you will never know the freedom that comes from trusting in Christ rather than trusting in your own ability and your own performance. You see in verse 27 that His righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, which is a foreign righteousness, was re- it replaced our feigned righteousness. We, we try to fake it. For so much of our lives, we try to fake righteousness, to look good. Even we come into our churches and we put on the church face and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, brother, how are you doing this week? And we go, good, I'm fine. Everything's wonderful. And inside we are racked with guilt and there is sin and temptation and our marriages are falling apart and our kids have gone AWOL and we're wrestling and struggling. But we come into church and we put on the church face. I'm good. Two thumbs up. That's garbage. How different would it be if we were able to lay bare our hearts before God and be honest with our struggles. So much so that when we come into this place and somebody asks, how are you doing this week? We could truly be honest. You know what? I'm really struggling. My marriage is falling apart. I'm really concerned about my kids. They're hanging out with the wrong crowd and I don't know what to do about it. I think I'm going to lose my job. 
I'm really scared of what that's going to mean for my family. You see what would happen if we would begin to get honest with one another in the church rather than just giving our I'm fine, I'm good. If we would begin to be really honest about the fact that all of us are wrestling, all of us are struggling. And if you're not struggling right now, let me go ahead and give you the warning. You will be. This too shall pass, and you will find yourself in the struggle. Life will happen to you, and will you run back to a guilt-based obedience where you seek to earn the favor of God, or will you rest in His grace in the middle of the turmoil? Will you rest in His grace in such a way that you won't try to fix it in your own power because you're only going to make it worse? You're only going to make it worse. That's your only ability. That's my only ability. And He's only in His ability to make it better fix what we've broken now in Christ Jesus Ephesians 2 you who were once far off you Gentiles you who were once far from God they're described Gentiles in the New Testament are described as without God and without hope in the world you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace notice that he doesn't say he came to give you peace he came to show you the pathway to peace. No, he says, He is your peace. You don't have peace right now? Look to Christ. He is your peace. Who has made both of us one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Let me show you one last thing. We'll wrap up this morning. Look with me there in verse 28. We'll start in verse 27. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You say, well, what's that all about? What he's setting out for you there in verse 28 is the three great dividing lines of the culture in which Paul was ministering the gospel. The greatest of them was between the Jews and the Gentiles, or here, the Jews and the Greeks. That was the greatest divide in the culture. There was a, there was a Grand Canyon-sized chasm between Jews and Greeks in that day. The Jews would not even eat in the home of a Gentile, much less associate with them. That was the greatest divide. The second greatest divide was between those who were slaves and those who were freedmen. Those who were slaves and those who were freedmen. By the way, slavery is by no means dead in our world today. It's just taken on an uglier, more insidious form. The second greatest divide there in, in that culture was between slaves and free people. The third greatest divide is one of gender. There's a divide between males and females. In that particular culture, most of the time, females were considered to be property, not much better than a slave. And here's what he's saying. He is not saying God came so we could all be gender neutral and all the cultural nuttiness that's going on. This verse has been used to defend some of the cultural craziness that's happening in terms of gender. No, God created us male and female, but it was never his design or desire that male and female would become a wall erected between people. And, and God created Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, but it was never his desire that those racial things would become a separating wall between people. And God created some who are wealthy and some who are poor, some who are educated and some who are uneducated, some who live in the city and some who live in the country, some who, who, who worship at the altar of the University of Kentucky and some at the altar of the University of Louisville. I didn't get much laughter that time either. I'm going to quit using that joke. 
all the dividing walls that are built are decimated by the gospel. That's what he's saying. It's not that it's, it's still by God's design that we were created men and women, and men and women have different functions to, to live out in the home and way, different ways to glorify God. But they come together and they complement one another. They don't contradict one another. That's what our co- culture is not getting about this gender issue. The gender issue is a gospel issue, church. It's not just about what label goes in the bathroom. It's about the fact that God created us in that way so that men and women could come together and complement one another as a living picture of the gospel. That's what marriage is. When a husband and wife come together, a man and woman come together in all of their glorious differences, they have the opportunity to become a living picture of the gospel where all those glorious differences are laid at the foot of the cross, where the ground is level, where Christ died for all people to provide rescue. And so those divisions that were so huge in Paul's day, look at the racial divide in our country. Look at the increasing socioeconomic divide in our country. The middle class is dissipating in our day right now. The divide between rich and poor is growing wider as we speak. You don't think that's going to have ramifications in our country, folks? You're missing it. We can go on and on with the things that divide us. And yet what he's saying here is this gospel that we are proclaiming, it tears down all those dividing walls. It makes all those nothing. And we can come together, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slaves and free, we can come together in the gospel and we can lift up holy hands and praise to God standing right next to one another. And we can give of our lives in praise to God out of gratitude for what he's done for us right next to one another. We can be so radically different, so radically diverse, and yet we come together in light of the gospel and all those things that would divide us, all those things that would separate us out into various categories, they all become so utterly meaningless in light of the fact that Jesus Christ died for every single one of us, and we trust in Him. This is why the gospel matters. You see, the dividing walls that were raised up by the law were raised, that's two different words there, by the way, by Christ. The dividing walls that were erected by our sin, really the, the law just pointed out, here's all your divisions. But they were raised, they were utterly decimated at the cross. So that we could have true fellowship with one another. And so that we could come to this table that we're going to come to this morning. And so ultimately, all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So as we come to that last mountain peak, and as we scale those final few steps to get to the pinnacle, may we look out and may the shout of our lungs be amen to the glory of God. Look at what Christ has done for us. Look at all that he has accomplished at the cross. 
Look at all the time that we wasted trying to, by our own performance, earn something from God, when all the while He was offering us to, to us freely what we had always desired to begin.